An unhealthy fear of someone will keep you from intimacy with them. Having an unhealthy fear of someone will keep you from an intimate relationship with that person. What do I mean by unhealthy fear? I mean you're scared. I mean like the dictionary says, fear is a distressing emotion aroused by impending danger, evil, pain, whether the threat is real or imagined. It's the feeling or condition of being afraid. That's what fear is. And if you're afraid of someone, it's very hard for you to have a personal close relationship with that person. Now, many of you know that I have an unhealthy fear of your parents. I do. It's very hard for me to have an intimate and close relationship with your parents because I have an unhealthy fear of them. Some of your parents, you know, when they pick you up, I'm like, I get all nervous. I'm like, oh, I'm going to say I'm so stupid. Oh, my gosh. And I just, you know, can't make eye contact with them. And uh, there's been times in the past where I've, you know, one of you have called me. And I pick up the phone and be like, yo, what up? And it's actually your dad. And I'm like, this is Mr. So-and-so. And I'm like, oh, hi. Then I have to put my passive voice back on. Uh, one time, something really awkward happened. And this never, like, ever happened to me. I'm going to let you in on a secret. If you're ever calling someone and your, answering your, your message that you're leaving on their answering machine sounds stupid, if you press the pound sign, you get to redo it. Did you know that? I just let you in on a secret. So I would do this all the time. If I was leaving a message that sounded dumb, I just press the pound sign and I redo it. And one time when I was calling Trent Stocky, Julia's brother, uh, I was leaving a message because no one picked up. But it was their, their home phone. So I'm calling the home phone and I'm leaving a message. And, then, and I sounded professional. I was like, hello, this is a message for Trent Stocky. This is Alan Kahn from Calvary Oldbridge, and I just wanted to let you know that I'm willing to hang out with you today, and I'll be at my house all day. And then I said, I said house, but like the wrong Canadian way. And then I start laughing. I was like, wow, that was stupid. I'm going to redo that one. Pound. Pound. No! No! And I'm just like screaming on the phone, and the whole time it's still recording. So you hear me freaking out. And I was just like, oh my gosh, what do I do, what do I do? And it's like, your message has been received. And then I was like, no. So then at this point in my life, that's when I called Julia. I was like, Julia, you need to do me a favor. I will do anything for you. You need to go on your answering machine and make sure your parents never hear this message that I left on your answering machine. She's like, why, why not? And then I was like, you can't listen, it, listen, listen to it either. But she did. And then she deleted it for me, and then I bought her bubble tea afterwards. And I was really, really thankful. Thank you for saving my life. So I think you can see if you are afraid of someone and you have this, this unhealthy fear of someone, it's going to keep you from being intimate with that person. How can you have an intimate per, uh, relationship with someone that you're, like, terrified of and you're not even, you can't even, like, concentrate when you're talking to them? Maybe you have an unhealthy fear of your boss. I did when I was, I, I'm just afraid of the world, I think. When I was 16, I got my first job, the day I turned 16, actually, at Peter Pank Diner. And uh, I was afraid of my boss. My boss, to me, was really scary. And uh, me being a 16-year-old little Asian boy, I, just, I was afraid to ask for my paycheck every single week. I felt like I was doing something wrong. So I was just like, oh, can, I, can I have my paycheck, please? And they're like, yes, yeah, sure. And then they give me my paycheck. But it's very hard for me to have a personal conversation with them. 
just like it was hard for me to have a personal conversation with Andy Dean for a long time, because every single time he would ask me to go to dinner with him, it's because I did something bad. And so he'd be like, hey, man, you want to go get some lunch? And I'm like, sure. What did I do wrong? And then he'd, like, buy something for me, and then he'd be like, so... I saw what you put on Facebook, and I'm like, ah, oh, I knew it. And then after a while, it's, I couldn't have any personal conversation with Andy because I just figured I was doing something wrong. Actually, for those of you that didn't know, when Andy asked me to take over junior high, I drove 45 minutes thinking the whole time I must have done something terrible because he never asked me to go to dinner with him. And then finally, he's like, you probably figured by now that I didn't just want to have dinner with you. I was like, oh, no, what did I do? He's like, I want you to take over junior high. And she was like, ah, oh, what? What are you talking about? I was really confused. So why do I say this? And what's the proof of this? Well, 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. There's your proof. The Bible says so. That you can't have fear in love. And the same applies to God. In that, an unhealthy fear of God will keep you from a close relationship with him. An unhealthy fear of God will keep you from a close relationship with God. Now, what, what, what I mean by unhealthy fear, I'm not talking about, um, you know, the Bible says to fear the Lord. And obviously when it's saying that, it means to revere the Lord, to honor the Lord. And an unhealthy fear would be to be terrified of the Lord. And what would trigger an unhealthy fear of God? I think two things, and we're going to see it in Hebrews chapter 12. The first one is ignorance. An unhealthy fear of God is triggered by ignorance. What do I mean by that? I mean, how many of you when you were little were afraid of the dark? Raise your hand. Anyone? I was. For a very long time, I used to always have to have a nightlight or my dad would be in the room with the lights on. I just could not sleep in the dark. Why? Because I think what made the dark so scary is that you didn't know what was there. You didn't know if there was a monster underneath your bed or if there was a scary old man that was just in the corner of your room, which happened to be my dad, but now I'm kidding, dad. Oh, darn it. My mom listens to this. <laughs> Hi, mom. <laughs> I think what makes it so scary is that air of mystery. You don't really know what's out there. Just like when uh, uh, Pastor Joey Rosek, once upon a time, told the youth group that, you know, these demon-possessed people used to call him in the middle of the night. I, I'll never forget him telling me that because from that point forward, being a 15-year-old kid, I just figured that if I left my phone on in the middle of the night, that there would be some demon-possessed person that called me. So up until two years ago, I would always turn off my phone at night until two years ago. I'm not even joking because I was, I was afraid that like someone called me and, and a couple of times some of you have prank called me and I would like not answer it. I wouldn't listen to the voicemail to the morning. You could be dying and I wouldn't answer it. This guy was terrified. So anyway, being ignorant concerning God's character can invoke unhealthy fear. In other words, how can you trust a God you know very little about? How can you trust that God's for you if you don't even know who God is? I think this is a tactic of Satan, which is to paint an unloving picture of God. And, and if you remember in Genesis, Satan actually said, did God really say that you can't eat of all the trees in the garden? What did he do? He painted an unloving picture of God. 
how do you know that God has your best interests in mind? And I think a lot of lies in this world would say to you things like, well, how do you know that you're elect? How do you know that you're really saved? And I struggle with that a lot, especially when I was younger and when I was in youth group, I would pray the sinner's prayer a billion times because I wanted to make sure that I didn't go to hell, that God still loved me. And I think there's something wrong about that. There's something wrong about continually feeling like you're on God's bad side. And I think that's a tactic of Satan. So it's ignorance, not knowing who God is, not knowing his character, which can trigger this unhealthy fear of God, believing that, and uh, some people I've talked to believe that God is this angry God up there that's, that tortures people in hell and sends basically good people there for eternity. And if you have that picture of God, it's going to be very hard for you to trust in a person like that. How can you trust in a God that you know sends good people to hell? Which he doesn't, but if you have that picture, it'll be very hard. Secondly, I think the second thing that triggers an unhealthy fear of God is guilt. Guilt is another thing that triggers unhealthy fear. Because you see, when you know that you've wronged someone, it's very hard to have a normal conversation with them. Have you ever done something wrong to someone? They didn't know. They were kind of, they, they had no idea that you gossiped about them or that you stole their lunch and they didn't eat their lunch yet and you accidentally ate it. Or I know back uh, when I was 17, I, you know, I messed up my mom's bumper and backing up somewhere. And it scratched it pretty, pretty bad. You can, still see the, you can still see the battle scars on the car on my silver car. And I remember coming home and it was hard for me to have a normal conversation with my mom because she was ignorant of the fact that I have done something wrong. So that guilt kept me from that intimacy. And if you have that with God, it's going to do the same thing. You can have this unhealthy fear that God is against you. So when you sin against God or you've done something really bad, all of a sudden it's really hard to approach God with your prayers. And when you're in a desperate situation, Satan reminds you of that sin that you've done or that person that you were too close with. And all of a sudden, these thoughts flood your mind. You're like, oh, well, I'm praying to God. I know I'm forgiven, but I did all this. And how do I know that God still loves me? And those kinds of fears can keep us from trusting in God. And that's kind of like what we're going through today is these fears, if they're not dealt with, will keep you from placing your faith in God. Last week, we learned about having radical faith in God. But you can't have a radical faith in God if you're not willing to trust him. And if you have these barriers to your faith. So go to Hebrews chapter 12, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And let's see what it says. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So great a cloud of witnesses. What is he talking about? He's talking about chapter 11. Now, if you've ever read Hebrews chapter 11, the entire chapter is dedicated to what faith does, how God has moved in history. And so you have people like Abraham, people like Sarah, people like 
Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and all these different people, how God in history has worked. And hopefully at this point in your life, you've seen God work. You've seen God do something amazing in your life. And if you haven't yet, I would ask you, have you prayed for God to do something amazing in your life? Have you prayed for God to make himself real to you? And if he has, you have a cloud of witnesses. You have something to look back on. And even if you haven't, you have the Bible, which we know is historical account, to look on and say, all right, God has worked in history, and God can work in my life too. It's true. It's the same God today, yesterday, and forever. He is always faithful. And so he says, since we have this great cloud of witnesses, people that have exercised that faith in God and have been blessed by God, let's lay aside every weight, everything that holds us back. What is holding you back from trusting in God? What is that weight? Is it ignorance? Is it that unhealthy fear that you don't really know what's, what, who God is? You don't know who this God of the Bible is. This is new to you. Or maybe it's that guilt, that's, that sin that so easily ensnares you. We all have that kind of sin, that sin that we keep going back to. And no matter how many times you feel like you've beat it, it just keeps coming back. And you have to ask yourself, why is it that I am so easily tripped up by this sin? It could be a big sin. It could be a little sin. It could be a sin of anger and just always being frustrated. And you don't understand why God hasn't saved you from this frustration. Or it could be a big sin, you know, in our eyes. But God is here to save us from all of them. And he actually says, verse 3, Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. What does that mean? He says, listen, I know you try really hard to resist sin, but when was the last time you tried so hard that you actually started bleeding? When's the last time you're like, no, I will not be angry. And then you start gushing blood. It's like, I don't think you've tried that hard yet. But think about this. Jesus tried to bloodshed. Jesus resisted sin so much that he actually had to shed his blood for our sake. So this is how we do it. We look upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, looking unto him, realizing that it can be done. You can defeat sin because someone already has. You don't have to be ensnared by that sin any longer because Jesus has come to set you free. And he who the Son of Man sets free is what? Free indeed. Amen. It's true. You don't, it doesn't matter what sin you've committed. It doesn't matter how in bondage you feel, but God has come so that we could be free. That is the message of the gospel. So why is it that we continually have this guilt, continually have this sin that we feel like we can never be freed from? This is where he says in verse 5, You have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which we have all become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? 
For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may become partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems joyful to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What's he talking about here? He's saying, listen, everyone goes through times where you just feel so down, so guilty. And you're going through a trial and you're just like, why am I going through this? And realize, he says, listen, the fact that you're going through this is not because God hates you. It's because he loves you. The fact that you are caught in your sin, the fact that you are caught doing the wrongdoing is not God's hate, but rather his mercy. You want to hear something trippy? Everyone look up here. This is something I realized this week, thanks to a student that asked me a question this week. I've never thought about it this way. But did you realize that the fact that there's death in the world is an act of God's mercy? The fact that when Adam and Eve originally sinned in the Garden of Eden, the fact that death entered the world through their sin was actually an act of mercy. And as horrible as death seems, and as horrible as death is to us when people die, if death did not enter the world through Adam's sin, Adam and Eve and all of us would be just like the angels that sinned against God, which became demons. They had no chance of redemption. Once they chose their sin, they were locked in it. Why? Because they're eternal beings. They live forever. There's no chance of redemption at all. So through death, we have the opportunity for uh, atonement of sins through Jesus Christ. That's pretty trippy. That's something I never thought about before. Maybe you haven't either. So in the appearance of evil is actually good. What seems to be darkness is actually light. Because it's all the same to God. He sees it all the same. And God is able to bring out of the worst of circumstances, out of the most tragic of all stories, the most beautiful redemption story in all of history. And that is that God himself ended those daily sacrifices. If you remember in the Old Testament, they had to continually offer sacrifices unto the Lord. There had to be a high priest. One person, once a year, goes to the holies of holies in the temple. You have this temple, you have the outer court, the inner court, and then you have the holy place, and then you have the holy of holies. Only one person, once a year, could enter that place where God himself resided, his own presence, once a year, one person, right? And he would offer sacrifices for sins. But now, through Jesus, he has died once and for all so that we no longer have to continue, continually offer this sacrifice. No longer continually have to come before God and say, God, forgive me for what I've done. Although that's great to do, realize that God has forgiven past sins, current sins, and future sins if you are in Christ Jesus. So that. Now we have access to the holies of holies. We don't have to send one person in once a year, but each of us can cry out, Abba, Father. Have this intimate relationship with Jesus. That's what we're able to do. The people in the Old Testament dreamed of a day in which they could have a personal relationship with Jesus, but it was never available to them. You have access to something that people in the Old Testament never had. Isn't that crazy? So God wants this relationship with us, his personal relationship with us. It actually says, 
Earlier in Hebrews chapter 9, if you just want to flip a page back, it says in verse 24 of chapter 9, For Christ has not entered the holy places made in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often as a high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of, end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after the, this, the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So realize we don't have to continually come to God as if we have been pushed away, as if God is upset with us, as if God hates us, because now we are his beloved children. And when you're convicted of sin, that guilt is evidence that God is living within you. That guilt is not evidence that Satan is in you because Satan doesn't want you to feel guilty. It's the Holy Spirit living inside of you saying, what you've done isn't right. And that chastening proves that you are God's children. Awesome. So it is painful, as it says in verse 11. Chastening, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God is training you as spiritual athletes. And you're going through constant struggles. You're going through constant temptations and all these different things. But God wants you to succeed. It says in verse 12, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed. Yesterday we had an England meeting, uh, a reunion, just talking about this, certain things that we've learned since the trip. And we talked about Nehemiah chapter 4, about building the wall. Here's a guy named Nehemiah, and it's so crazy how this parallels where we are as a church almost exactly. And I was just reading it in my devotions. I just happened to be in it when I read my devotions. I read morning and night, but my nightly devotions was in Nehemiah chapter 4. And Nehemiah was a man from a far country who was just a cupbearer, right? He wasn't anything special. But he heard the walls of Jerusalem were torn down. And so he and his heart started weeping and he wanted to do something about it. So he was a cupbearer. He wasn't equipped to do it, but he said, I need to go. So he asked the king. The king says, fine, let's go. Bring some people. He goes over to that city, Jerusalem, starts building the walls. And what happens? People make fun of him. They say, it's going to be so poorly made that even a fox wandering on the wall is going to make it crumble. And so Nehemiah, at that time, he says, you know what? We just got to pray. And as he did, other people said, well, now they're actually building the wall. And now we got to make sure that it doesn't succeed. So let's go beat them up and let's go kill them. And so what they actually had to do is with one hand, they're building the wall. And with the other hand, they're holding their weapons, fighting the enemy. And that's how we feel as Christians. In one sense, we're trying to encourage one another, build one another, build one another up and cause this revival in the church. On the other hand, we're fighting off the enemy and fighting off the battles that happen sometimes within the walls of Christianity. You wouldn't believe how many people I've talked to after sharing this story of revival and people said, well, that's great. Well, you just want to make sure that that hype doesn't waste away. And, you know, you, everyone has a high season and a low season and it's going to drop down again. I was like, really? Aren't we all Christians? Shouldn't we expect something great from God? Shouldn't we expect that God's able to do anything that he wants to do? Like, yeah, yeah, I know. But I'm just saying, like, people go through these things and they come back down. I'm like, this is so depressing. Come on. We need to build a wall. 
Strengthen the hands that hang down, the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Here, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is encouraging us, exhorting us, hey, stand up. Don't let yourself be discouraged. Let your heart not be troubled. Why? I have overcome the world, and I, living in you, want you to change the world. That's what Jesus wants to do in all of us. Change our hearts, revive us, and change the world. You think Jesus, you like ask Jesus, Jesus, do you want to change the world? Do you want to cause a revival? Oh, not today, maybe tomorrow. I'm a little tired in here. I mean, it's pretty sweaty in here, pretty hot. Don't like it at all, actually. You need to feed me more. No, Jesus wouldn't complain living inside of you. But you need to make a place for the Holy Spirit. You need to make that place inside of your heart and prepare yourself so that you can go fight those battles. Verse 14, and here's the application of everything. So we've known the faith, we've seen the faith, and now pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. You see, a lot of people in the hopes of causing a revival, in the hopes of serving the Lord, running the race with endurance, get caught up by bitterness in their own hearts against other people. Satan's looking for all kinds of ways. He roams around the world like a roaring lion, the Bible says, seeking whom he may devour. The enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy, but the Father, the Son has come that we might have uh, joy, life, and that more abundantly. That's what he's come to do. And Satan wants to do the opposite of that thing. So we can't let bitterness rule our hearts. Instead, we need to let Jesus rule our hearts. In verse 16, it says, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Don't miss out on this opportunity. The man Esau, if you remember the story, he sold his birthright. We've taught this message before. He sold his birthright, and when he wanted to repent, it was too late because he already sold his birthright. Don't sell yourselves cheap. Don't lose your opportunity that's in front of you. You can't get these missed opportunities back. If you miss your opportunity to evangelize or stand up for Jesus, you're not going to be able to just get it back. It's already gone. So when God's calling you, to seek him, seek him, the Bible says, while he may be found. Because there may come a time which, in which he may not be found. In which your sin keeps you from the Lord. Verse 18. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that may be burned with fire into blackness and darkness and tempest. And the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words. So that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. This is crazy. This is a picture of the Old Testament God. Not saying that God's any different. But this is how the, old, uh, the people of the Old Testament had to relate to God. Because God is holy. He couldn't be with people that were unholy. And so you have Mount Sinai. This mountain in which God himself was residing. And so it says here, the people, the people, back, uh, the people of Israel, when they were with Moses, they begged that the word of God would not be spoken anymore because they couldn't take it. Can you imagine what that's like? Stop preaching the word. I can't take it anymore because their hearts were too vile. 
Verse 20, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, even Moses, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. Moses talked personally with God, but even he was exceedingly afraid and trembling because here was a holy God and he had no mediator, no way to access that God. Now, if Moses was able to do all the things he, he, he was able to do and not have a mediator, how much more can we do having Jesus Christ for us, being with us? How do we take that for granted? How do we just keep living our lives the same way and just assuming that it's not going to get any better? If Jesus has come, then we have to realize that God really does want to do something great, maybe something we've never even seen before. It says in verse 22, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Look at the two different mountains. In one case, you have Mount Zion, or you have Mount Sinai, in which the people were exceedingly afraid. They were told to leave, stay away from this mountain. The people couldn't approach this mountain at any cost. It was one person, Moses, who was able to do it. Mount Sinai was all about exclusion, and Mount Zion is instead about invitation. Come, you who thirst, you who are heavy laden, I will give you rest. So Jesus said, and he's welcoming us. Instead of fear and ter terror, it's all about love and forgiveness. That's what we have access to through Mount Zion. And we were never able to access that before Jesus was here. So we're living in a different century, a different place. In which it doesn't matter who you are, what you look like, what you've done. Listen, no sin that you've ever committed is too big for the sacrifice of Jesus. For Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Jesus doesn't have to die again and again and again. He died once for all. For every single sin that you could ever possibly commit. And not while you're at your best, but even the sins you don't even realize you've made. God forgives you for those sins too. It says in Isaiah 44, 22, I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. Return to me for I have redeemed you. Maybe you say, I know what you're saying is true, but I just, I'm too far gone in my sin. I don't think God could ever forgive me for the things I've done. You just have no idea what I've been through. Check out this parable, Matthew chapter 21, verse 28. Jesus said, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second, and he said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, The first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots entered the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward, afterward relent and believe him. It doesn't matter what you've done, who you are. God is willing to forgive you. He died for that person 
while you were at your worst. While, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It continues on. Verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, and then that the things which, are, which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably by, with reverence and godly fear. Notice how he says that. The true way to worship God is with godly fear, with reverence, treating him as holy. For our God is a consuming fire. And I truly believe that. If God enters your heart, you're not going to be able to remain the same. You know, I'm not saying that you're going to have these emotions and feelings. You know, Martin Luther has this great poem he wrote. He says, feelings come and go and feelings can be deceiving. My warrant is the word of God. None else is worth believing. It's true. You know, our emotions go up and down. But one thing that's constant is the word of God. So we're to serve God with reverence and godly fear, which means to honor him, to expect that when we show up that God's going to be faithful in what he does. It doesn't matter if you're young, poor, rich, a sinner, the worst of sinners. God came to this earth to set you free. And as I'm saying all this, you know, I've had a lot of regret in my life. A lot of things that I feel guilty about because I wasn't diligent in seeking those things. And I've mentioned to you guys before, it's worth mentioning now. My first England trip that uh, I should have went on but I didn't go on was the trip that all my friends went on. And it was the most amazing God experience that they've ever experienced. And people spoke in tongues and like Joey found out his calling on his life and, and all this crazy stuff. And I remember hearing from the Lord that I wasn't supposed to go. And I got so mad for, for years. I was mad because I didn't understand why, you know, the 20 people that went on this mission trip were holier or more qualified than me to experience this outpouring of the Holy Spirit and why I had to stay over here in America and not experience that. And I was so upset for a long time. So I've been in that place. And what I'm saying to you guys tonight is, God isn't about showing some people in a different country something and, and not doing it for anyone else. And not saying that you guys aren't filled with the Spirit either. But no matter what level of Christianity you're at and no, no matter how filled with the Spirit you are, you can always be more excited and more filled with the Spirit. And that's why we've come together is to stir one another up for love and good works. And to bring that, not just keep it in one country and go have this high and have this low, but to have this revival start in our hearts because we believe that our God is a consuming fire. And we believe that everything God touches will be blessed. And we believe that everyone that God touches will be healed. And everyone that has pain will be healed. And it could be physical pain, but I'm talking about more, more so spiritual pain, emotional pain. It doesn't matter if you've been hurt by someone, neglected by someone, abandoned by someone. But God has come that you may be healed, to be set free. And we can't forget that. We can't look down upon God and be afraid of this God that 
just is about the rules and regulations and not about the relationship because that's really what he's all about. God wants to have an intimate relationship with you. So last week we learned all about faith and we need to have this kind of faith if we're ever to see a radical revival in our church. And tonight the message is that maybe you're not taking a step of faith because you don't know who your God is. We sang that song, Oceans, tonight. And the, if you remember that ending, uh, I don't know what it's called, but the ending of the song says, Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you lead me. Take me deeper than my feet could ever wander. And my faith will be made stronger in the presence of my Savior. I think that's such a beautiful picture, you know, of Peter when he was trying to walk on water. What happened? He took his eyes off Jesus and he started sinking. And that's when you have the lows, when you take your eyes off of Jesus. But do you believe that you can walk on water tonight? Do you believe that God is calling you to do something that might seem impossible? And you might get a lot of ridicule for it. You might have a lot of people make fun of you and say, you, you think you can cause a revival? No, there's nothing special about me. I just happen to be here. And you know what? Maybe I am personally, I'm just talking personally, maybe I'm in the way of this revival. Maybe I'm the one preventing you guys from really experiencing the Holy Spirit the way that you should. And if that's true, then God's going to take me out of the way and raise someone else up. But I have the faith that God is able to do it, and I believe him. And I'm daring enough to believe God's word. And hopefully you guys will join with me when I say that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above everything we could ask or think. And if you don't know who your God is, get to know him. Because he never disappoints. He who calls you is faithful.